All right, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Inside Pints, the show where we take members from Alberta's political world and have a drink with them. And this time we are sticking to Alberta, but we're actually going a little broader, which is something very exciting. We have, uh, for the very first time, someone from the federal side. We are joined by Senator Paula Simons. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Although um, I am not living up to the to the pints part of, <laughs> of this exercise. I'm sorry. I'm so boring. It's like having your auntie on. Well, you know, it's funny because I've kind of talked to the other people that we've had on and we've said that the reason it's inside pints is because it just rolls off the tongue easier. But our very first guest, she brought on a wine. Somebody else brought on a mixed cocktail thing. But we've also had sodas. We've had milkshakes. So honestly, anything nice. And especially with the way it's the uh, this is the uh, the lemon ginger herbal tea. That is is my my tipple of choice. Keep the vocal cords nice and open and lubricated. And I've just got a nice black tea from David's Tea in my hockey mug because Battle of Alberta starts up this weekend and I'm very excited for it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, with no further ado, I guess we'll do a quick cheers with uh, our teas and then we'll just uh, get right into it. Thank you for joining me. We'll have the tea. We'll have the shade. We will be good. Perfect. Hmm. You know what? The tea goes down very nice today, especially given that it's minus, oh my God, I don't want to go outside right now. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, my dog didn't get the memo. So, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. <sighs> All right. So, I kind of want to talk to you about a few different things. So, you offer quite a unique perspective when it comes to politics because prior to joining the Senate, you obviously spent quite a lot of time with the Edmonton Journal doing political journalism and a variety of other things. So, I remember I was reading an article shortly after you were appointed to the Senate and you had sort of said that it felt like being an outsider on the inside now. Yeah. And that was closer to when you were appointed. So I was just wondering, do you still find that sort of the case? Are you finding that with your background, it's become more of a natural fit? You know, it still feels strange to me. I mean, perhaps it's because there's been this this interruption brought on first by the federal election and then by the the COVID lockdowns. I haven't been in Ottawa nearly as much as I was in my first year. And so it still feels, I still feel like I wake up in the morning and have to pinch myself that, you know, that it, it still doesn't feel entirely authentic to think of myself as a senator. And maybe that's the healthier way to approach it. I was a journalist for 30 years and being a journalist was really a profound part of my personal sense of identity. I mean, I really saw myself as embodying a a certain kind of vision of what a journalist should be. And being a politician was never part of my game plan. And so to find myself on the other side of the glass is still disorienting. I I gave an interview uh, just the other day to to, to Duncan Kinney at at, at Progress um, in which I said, and this is a true story, that when I was on the road for hearings on on Bill C-69 a couple of years ago, I actually one day morning, it was it had been a lot of days on the road, and I guess I was tired. And I I came down to the ballroom where the hearings were going to take place in the morning and I saw the sign that said media and I sat down in the media seats. <laughs> it's like, right. No, um, you're not, you're not doing that anymore. So it, it can be a challenge because I still sometimes bring that journalist's eye to issues and that journalist's 
outspoken critical perspective to meetings and it's not always that well received inside <laughs> inside the tent. Uh, but I'm really lucky. One of my best friends in the Senate is Julie Nodel-Dichen, uh, who was for years uh, a, a, an acclaimed journalist with Radio Canada. She ran Radio Canada's Washington Bureau for a time. And uh, we're very simpatico. And sometimes I'll say a thing and she'll send me a text in a meeting and goes, oh, yeah, no, that's your journalist brain. <laughs> Off the journalist brain. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason I was kind of wondering about that, though, is because I imagine, I just know for myself, if I had the opportunity to sit in question period in any sort of way, I would just be absolutely salivating at the opportunity to ask the questions. Did Was that kind of the case at first or was it like, okay, this is a different world now? Yeah, no. I mean, the day I was sworn in, October 18th, Amarjeet Sohi, who was then the Minister of, of Energy, uh, was uh, the Minister of Natural Resources, was in for ministerial QP. So this is a thing in the Senate. It's It's different than what you see when you watch the House of Commons. So every, I guess it normally should be every month, and it certainly hasn't been that for a while. But every so often, uh, a minister of the crown comes and they sit in the hot seat and senators pepper them with questions. So it's the day of my swearing in. And I said to the clerk, I would like to ask Minister Sohi a question. And they said, no, this is this is your first day. You have like no seniority to ask a question. You don't belong to a group. Um, you you can't. I mean, you're you haven't even been sworn in yet. You can't go on the order paper to ask a question. And I said, but but, but I know Minister Sohi. I, like I you know I covered I covered his first uh, campaign for City Hall. I really want to ask the minister a question about Bill C sixty nine. And they sort of you know patted me on the head and said, okay, we'll put your name at the end of the list. <laughs> but don't get your hopes up. So my family had all come to watch my swearing in. And I said, well, you know, I might get to ask a question. They were like, yeah, 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 only you won't. So they actually went off on a tour of the parliament buildings and missed the moment when at the very last question, the speaker called upon me and everybody looked at me. It was like this Oliver Twist has asked for more kind of moment. Like, <laughs> like, like the ink is, the, the ink is literally not dry on the proclamation that I've signed. Um, and I got to ask Yamarjeet a question about, uh, about Dan downstream emissions and whether they would be encompassed in Bill C-69, because he'd sent me a note the day before. Are you going to have tough questions for me? And I said, I always have tough questions for you. So, um, yes. So, irrepressible on day one. Um, and Mike Duffy, <laughs> who was sitting like just diagonally to me, um, turned around and said, oh, you, you know, now I forget what he said. You've made history. Oh, you know, you've made an impression. So, day one, yeah, I was just asking questions just uh, raring to go just raring to go we was it was a, a great breach of protocol one of the more senior senators told me years later that like you know in the olden days when you were a new senator you didn't say anything in the chamber sort of for your first year you had to you had to work up but um i am always like a bull in a china shop well, there's uh, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Obviously, we want to see people uh, raring to go. So I'm glad to hear that that went. That's actually really funny. I've never heard that story. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I mean, and one of I mean, one of my favorite parts of being a senator, especially at the beginning when I was still trying to find my sea legs, was you know we have our hearings, public hearings, and we bring the expert witnesses in, and you know when you're new. They, they hand you questions in case you don't have any of your own. Here are some questions the library's prepared for you. And I looked down, I thought, 
No, hon. If there's one thing I do know how to do, it's this. I can't find the bathrooms. I can't follow the protocol, but I do know how to ask questions. And so uh, that is that is the great joy because, uh, you know, going to technical briefings and uh, cross-examining witnesses, that's that's right in my wheelhouse. Perfect. Well, and I guess the kind of the question I have now for you is now that you've been in the Senate for a little while, I mean, granted, it's only been a couple of years at this point, but have you sort of found that you're now that you've been on the other side of it, has your opinion on political journalism changed at all? Are you still kind of going into it with the same mindset or now that you've been in the Senate, is it a little different? You know, what, what you realize when you're on the other side and there are all so many things, the nuances you can't share, the stuff that you heard in confidence, and you realize that even the best journalist can only tell part of the story. Um, and so even the best, I mean, sometimes the best political journalism is done years after the fact when people do talk more frankly and the journalist can sort of go back and do sort of a political autopsy and reconstruct what happened. And so now that I'm in the Senate, I sometimes think back on some of the political reporting that I did and think, hmm, I bet there was something I was missing there. Or I can see now that I was being played by one side uh, with strategic leaks. And so, you know, when you're on the other side of the wall, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand. Now I understand why, you know, I made that mistake when I was a reporter. Now I understand um, why the person I thought was double crossing me was really, you know, subject to caucus discipline, that kind of thing. And you go, oh, okay, things from my past make more sense now. But mm -hmm. also, you know, it's a really different world in journalism than it was when I started. 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, uh, you know, there's so many fewer resources. There's so many fewer people covering political news. I mean, at the Alberta legislature, it's particularly dire compared to what it was when I was a member of the press gallery. But, you know, even in Ottawa, uh, the Senate doesn't get a lot of coverage. There's a lot of pack journalism from the main mainstream media sources. And so I've really learned to be proactive, especially because I don't belong to an old-fashioned caucus. I, I, I sit as a member of the independent senators group, but we're very independent, so we don't have, you know, talking points and media strategy. And so I've been quite entrepreneurial, I guess, in finding, seeking out journalists in Ottawa to whom to speak, um, some of whom I know from my previous life and some of whom, you know, I've just admired their work uh, for years anyway. And so... Um, I think I have a better understanding. I mean, what helps me is that I have a better understanding of the pressures that they're under. I understand their deadline constraints. I understand their time constraints. And so um, I try to make myself um, as easy to interview for them as possible. <laughs> and I guess that's sort of actually, you got really ahead of me there because I wanted to save something for the end, but now's the perfect time to bring it up. Talking about those resources of political journalism, it's gotten to a point, I think, one thing I've always kind of had in my head is that social media plays an absolutely huge role in that because people just want that information quick to the point where it was like what you said earlier, a lot of the best political journalism is done after the fact. It's not done in real time. So when things are still developing, it's really hard to separate that, okay, what's fact, what's rumor, what's opinion. So being on both sides of the aisle there, what have you seen with social media in terms of people's access to political news and political content. Is it for the better? Is it for the worse? Is it a little bit of a mix of the two? You know, it's it's a mix. It's the deal with the devil that journalism made 20 years ago. I mean, I was an early adopter of Twitter. I mean, not as early as Mac Mail, but... <laughs> 
but you know, I, I I've been on Twitter, you, you know, in Twitter years, I'm 107. So, uh, and when I started on Twitter, it was frankly in part because I was so frustrated with the way the Edmonton Journal back then. This is a long time ago. The Edmonton Journal was refusing to put my columns online because they believed that if people could read my columns for free online, they wouldn't subscribe or buy the paper. So they they held me back. And it made me crazy because it was just at the time that everybody was moving online. And I felt, you know, like like my dog at the dog park the moment, you know, before you take the leash off. And she's straining, straining, straining. So that was me. And so Twitter was my outlet to be able to break news in real time and to be able to communicate with people in real time. And this was so long ago. This was the Ed Stelmack government had brought in Bill 44, which was a parental rights piece of legislation. And they were holding sittings into the middle of the night. And I was filling in for a year for Graham Thompson at the legislature, uh, working with Archie McLean and Trisha Dett. And we were live tweeting things. And it was the first time anybody in Alberta had done that, you know, live tweeting QP, live tweeting the debates until, you know, two in the morning. Uh, I remember my husband coming like, and I was downstairs, you know, in his office, live tweeting at 2.30 in the morning in my pajamas. Um, so, I mean, I got addicted to it early. And it was always meant to be a complement to what went in the paper. And the challenge is that it becomes an endorphin rush, both for the reporter and for the reader. It becomes, you know, you're floating in that sea of adrenaline. You want quick input all the time. And it becomes an addiction. You're like the rat who's clicking the lever to get the the sugar cube or whatever the rat gets when it clicks the lever. Um, and, and so it is difficult because I valued always the real-time journalism of Twitter, whether I was covering, you know, the debate over uh, the new arena downtown, uh, which I did so quickly that Twitter kept putting me in Twitter jail because it thought I was a bot. Uh, <laughs> they just didn't believe that any real human being could tweet that fast. Um, but it's problematic because there is no depth uh, there is no time for contemplation. Uh, and, you know, once media made the decision to put all the content online, maybe my editors were right back in the day, because now that everything is free online, nobody wants to pay. And so, you know, paywalls make people react like, you know, like you've stolen their firstborn child, or, you know, that you're demanding some outrageous thing that they would, you know, that they would gladly pay for the print subscription, but they won't pay a penny for what they can see digitized free online. And I'm the same way, right? You know, uh, when, when, I, when I lose track of myself and let my subscriptions lapse and I can't get, you know, I can't read things online, I get really mad. You know, where, where, where's my New Yorker article? Why did the Atlantic stop letting me read everything for free? Um, uh, so, you know, we have, see, I'm still calling myself we, the media industry made this calculation that if it played ball with Twitter and Facebook, it would be good for them in the long run. And it, it, it hasn't been necessarily. And it's interesting because the big thing that people look for, I find, I mean, I'm, I'm still very, very relatively rookie in this. I'll be perfectly honest. But the one thing I find is that people value having that information from the source as much as they can. But 
at the same time, people don't really think about that. Even in that 145 character tweet, that's coming from only one perspective. And that's a trick with journalism. You're trying to have that balance. And I'm not going to call out names, but a certain 45th president of the United States was notorious for that. Um, And unfortunately, we took that to a different level. But again, that's just my analysis of that anyways. Well, well you know, but it, it, it's tricky, right? I mean, one of the first months that I was a senator, I guess it was like, I was like five or six weeks in. Uh, this is, it was just like just before Christmas of 2018 and there were rotating strikes going on at Canada Post. And the government was ordering the postal workers back to work. And I think they expected the Senate to just rubber stamp the back-to-work legislation, and instead, mm-hmm. we held days of emergency debate. We held everything up. Um, there was a lot of impassioned debate. Uh, in the end, the vote was to to accept the government's bill. I personally voted against it, but I did that after a lot of contemplation. So, I didn't take part in the debate because I was very green, and I felt I didn't have anything in particular to say. I was in a room full of senators, some of whom were former judges, some of whom were former labor arbitrators, some, you know, one of whom had been a provincial minister of labor in an NDP government, uh, some of whom had been union presidents in their former lives. There was really, really important, interesting debate going on from people who had gravitas and life experience and, you know, serious knowledge of the law. And I was listening and I looked up in the press gallery and there was nobody there because it was a Sunday. And I thought, you know, this is unfortunate. Uh, was it a Sunday? It was it was over the weekend. And, and there was not coverage happening. And at that point, the Senate was not video streamed. And I thought, well, okay, I don't really have a lot to contribute to this debate, but people across Canada care about this issue. This isn't some arcane thing. This is whether or not the post, you know, will, will these postal strikes go on? Will they be able to send their packages? Uh, will, will businesses be able to run? Will workers be forced back to work? And so I started live tweeting the debate. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> and I thought, well, I guess if I'm not allowed to do it, uh, someone will call a point of order or the clerk will tell me but nobody did. So I just kept on live tweeting. And so, you know, I went from having dozens of people following to thousands of people following because not because I'm such a fabulous raconteur of what's happening in the Senate, but because this was a matter of like, you know, intense public interest. And nobody in Alberta was terribly shocked that I was doing this. And like, oh, that's Paula. She live tweets things. <laughs> uh, but the the press corps in Ottawa were just gobsmacked because like, what was I, what was I doing that, you know, that's their job. It's not you know, senators aren't supposed to do this themselves from inside the chamber. Uh, and so I got some pushback from some journalists in Ottawa who did not think that was appropriate. And there were certainly some senators who I think didn't think it was appropriate. But in point of fact, nobody has ever told me to stop. Mm-hmm. So I'm really careful when I'm tweeting from the Senate floor that I attempt because I'm because I'm a nonpartisan independent senator. I try to make the tweets not partisan. Yeah. Some, sometimes that's easier than others. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned that about how it's a different culture in Ottawa when it comes to that live tweeting sort of thing, because there'll be times, for example, I'll be staying up late and I'll be watching some of the bills be debated here in the Alberta legislature. And it's not uncommon while I'm watching the live stream on YouTube, I've got a Twitter feed going on the other side. and I see MLAs posting about what's going on. It's And even in committee, you see the same thing. So it's, I wonder if that's just sort of like a, federal versus provincial, or maybe that's just the culture in different press galleries or whatever the case is. But no, that's interesting to hear. 
Yeah, and well, I think you know Edmonton. Edmonton is particularly vibrant on Twitter. Always has been, um, and I think that was because we had early adopters here um, who were really into it out the gate. I think the Twitter community here, especially the, you know the AB Ledge hashtag and the Yeg hashtag. Initially, there was sort of like a, a club of cool kids, and I sort of felt like I got to crash the cool kid club. Um, you know, I was 10, 15 years older than most people on Twitter. Um, but the Twitter community here is really robust, which is often why when some when people in Edmonton are talking about something, even if it's something really severely local, it will often trend nationally because so many people Absolutely. here are on Twitter. I, you know, I've never seen an analysis of this. It would be it would be really cur- interesting to see. Um, if we punch above our weight on Twitter, because I think we do. I mean, I think I think the Edmonton Twitter community is particularly engaged. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see I don't see nearly that much engagement uh, on on federal Twitter. Well, I guess we'll leave it to the uh, Twitter people to take a look at that because I'm sure someone will eventually pick this up and uh, want to do a little bit of digging on their end. Um, so I kind of want to go back to the uh, Senate side of things. And so unfortunately, we obviously heard at the end of December that uh, Senator Elaine McCoy had passed. And obviously, that was she had a huge impact on the province. She was a former yeah. minister here, went over to the Senate. And I don't think people really have an appreciation for what she did. So Obviously, you would have gotten to know her a little bit as a fellow Alberta senator, but as a colleague, what was it like working with her? Well, it was such a, it's fascinating, right? Because I knew her when I was a little baby journalist, like, you know, very young working as an associate producer at the CBC in Edmonton uh, when she was a cabinet minister. She joined the cabinet the, the year I started journalism school. But she she was this extraordinary figure in the Don Getty cabinet. She was tall and beautiful and had these amazing eyes and this incredible fashion sense. And she chain smoked. Uh, Dawn Braid used to call her Puff the Lady Dragon. So, I mean, she was she was this femme formidable in, in the Alberta legislature. Um, and she had some some key portfolios uh, and, and did a lot of really stuff when you look back, and I, I've spent some time recently looking back over over news stories from the day, she was championing gay rights in Don Getty's Alberta, you know, pushing for LGBTQ, protection for LGBTQ people to be put into Alberta's human rights legislation at a time when that was, you know, a really radical thought. Um, she was very out front in the fight to protect women from domestic abuse, uh, spearheaded something called the Lake Louise Declaration, which ended up being a blueprint for provinces across the country to tackle spousal abuse. Uh, but she also did things like completely, um, you know, uh, organized the re-regulation of the Alberta Securities Commission. So uh, she was one of the first people who suggested that Alberta should have a public policy response to climate change. You know, this is in the mid eighties. So, uh, so she was this really formidable figure in Alberta provincial politics when I was just starting my career. So it was something to meet her in Ottawa and, and to meet this person who had been, you know, a big part of the political culture when I was a very junior journalist and, and to meet her um, as the uh, doyen of the Senate. She was, I think in Ottawa, you know, she could rub people the wrong way sometimes, but she was very direct and she was very, 
she was very frank and she was very committed to her perspective. And it wasn't always an easy perspective for people to understand because she was a fierce environmentalist and also a fierce defender of Alberta's oil and gas industry. Um, she'd worked for Alberta's energy regulator as a lawyer. She'd worked for Transalta, but she'd also, after leaving politics in Alberta, had headed up an environmental foundation. So she tried to walk that very difficult balance of being somebody who was committed to environmental action and also somebody who understood that Alberta, you know, couldn't just be uh thrown to the thrown to the wolves economically speaking and i think it was hard for people on both sides of the issue to understand uh the kind of uh you know that kind of middle road she was trying to walk but you know she was one of the people who really um helped the evolution of the Senate towards the independent model that it has. Um, when she was appointed, I mean, she'd been a PC cabinet minister in Alberta who was appointed to the Senate by Paul Martin, a liberal prime minister. She refused to sit as a Stephen Harper conservative. Um, uh, she insisted on sitting as a progressive conservative in Ottawa, even when those weren't a thing anymore. And when she couldn't be a progressive conservative senator, she insisted on sitting as an independent senator. And she really, her work really laid the framework for the independent Senate that we have today. And that's actually exactly where I want to go next, because she was one of the integral people behind starting the independent senators group. And that's the one you're a part of right now. And a lot of people might sort of think independent senators group, that sounds like an oxymoron, but really yeah. in practice, it's not. <laughs> it's it's complicated. I mean, and it's interesting because the independent senators now have sort of split into three we don't call them caucuses, but I'm going to call them caucuses because calling them groups makes us sound like we're doing yoga or something. <laughs> um, so there are three, three independent senator entities right now. There's the, I, the, the ISG, the Independent Senators Group, which is the largest. I think there are about 44 of us now. Um, uh, we don't have a leader. We have facilitators uh, because that's that's how we roll, um, and we. We work together towards issues of Senate modernization. Uh, we share ideas and strengths, but we don't vote as a block. Everybody votes independently. Nobody is whipped. Uh, thus, the ISG doesn't speak for us on policy issues. It is a challenge because Ottawa is set up for groupthink. Ottawa is set up for caucuses. And the idea that you've got 44 people each pulling in their own direction uh, makes us a very complicated entity. Like it's hard for us to organize a Christmas party, much the less, you know, line up behind a bill. So, I mean, we are a, a pretty headstrong bunch of people. Uh, and so our facilitators, it's not like herding cats. It's like herding mountain lions. It is a, diff <laughs> it is, it is a difficult gig. Um, then there's the progressive group, which is made up, uh, some of them are people who had been former liberal senators who remained in the Senate after uh, Justin Trudeau said they shouldn't be called liberals anymore and that they weren't to caucus with the Liberal Party. Um, some of them are former ISG members who just found the ISG, I don't know, uh, too big, too, uh, too, uh, too difficult. And so... For each for their own reasons, I don't want to speak for them because some of them are, are good friends of mine, have have left the ISG to sit with the progressive group. 
And then the third group of independents are the Canadian Senators Group, which is led by my Alberta colleague, Scott Tannis, who quit the Conservative Caucus to cross the floor to lead the CSG. And the CSG is an interesting bunch. Some of them are former Conservatives. Some of them are former ISG members. And two of them, I think, are former Liberals. Who? So they are people... I guess they'd sort of be center right. They might be considered, you know, old style progressive conservatives um, and really are interested in focusing on regional issues and defense of of different parts of the country. So there are about 80 of us all together who are independent senators and about 20 who are conservative senators who are still part of the conservative government. Um, And I've got my math wrong because currently we have 14 vacancies that need to be filled. Um, Those people will, I mean, any of them could join the Conservative caucus, but I think it's likely that of our, when our 14 new senators arrive, they'll filter into the three independent caucuses as, as they choose. And I think you're sort of reading my mind because I wanted to jump right into the uh, Alberta Senate election stuff that's coming up because I know you sort of spoke about it and the look on your face says it already. I get it. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't want to try and dig up this whole issue because I know you've spoken about this before, but I know the one thing that's kind of come up with this is that why are we doing this when it's a symbolic thing? The prime minister at the end of the day doesn't have to accept any of the nominations that come from the province that he has to make his own decision. Um The other thing, too, being, I don't know, this might just be my analysis, but I I sort of see this as a bigger political play for the province in the sense that they've really tried to drive home that fair deal message since before the UCP government here in Alberta was elected and nominating senators that hypothetically could potentially not be appointed seems to fit the narrative. But I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Well, you know, I need to... I need to stress it is not my job to critique the work of Jason Kenney and the UCB provincial government. It's my job to critique federal government policy. But I think I think that because this speaks to the Senate, um, Senate independence project, what a lot of people don't necessarily understand is that when Justin Trudeau became prime minister, he put in place an entirely new way of appointing senators. So these used to be straight up patronage appointments. And some of those patronage appointments were very good. I mean, there were some great senators appointed from Alberta. You know, I talked about Elaine McCoy. You think about Tommy Banks. You could think about Nick Taylor. You could think about Doug Roche. We've had some amazing senators from Alberta, a lot of whom were very independent-minded or who sat as independents. Um, but Trudeau wanted to move away from a patronage system. And so instead now, anybody over the age of 30 who owns $4,000 of real property in the province they seek to represent can apply to be a senator. So it's an open competition. You don't have to have a political background. In fact, you kind of get points in in the marking system for being apolitical because the government's very keen not to make it look like they're appointing a bunch of of uh, uh, liberal, uh, you know, liberal party donors and and candidates. So um, we have we have adopted this new system. It's been in place for I guess four and a bit years now. Um, it has appointed some really remarkable people to the Senate, the kinds of people who would never have been appointed under the old system. And I think that we have really given the Senate back some dignity and some purpose and uh, some credibility in in the eyes of the public. I think it's been a really interesting experiment. I'm really excited to be part of it. So 
the problem with Senate elections is one, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled uh, when Stephen Harper asked them, the Supreme Court said, you can't have Senate elections because that's antithetical to the function of the Senate as set up under the BNA Act. And if you want to have Senate elections, you have to have a constitutional amendment involving seven provinces representing 50% or more of Canada's population. So in theory, you could have Senate elections, but you would need to get the buy-in of provinces across the country. Um, and if you had Senate elections, I mean, the one thing Stephen Harper never asked the Supreme Court was if he could have equal. So, you know, you would then entrench elected senators who would have much more power and Alberta would be perennially disadvantaged because we have far fewer senators than than other provinces. So, and also, I mean, electing senators is, as the Supreme Court said, antithetical to the role of the senator. The whole point of being a senator is that you have the independence that comes with not being beholden to electors, that you can act in the best interests of your province and your country, that you can stand up for minority rights, that you can be a bulwark against majority oppression um, and majoritarianism in general, because you don't have to keep going back to voters because you don't have to raise money. You're not beholden to any donors. Um, so, I mean, there are lots of good reasons to have the Senate model that we have now, especially as we're in the process of, of these reforms. So we're going to have elections in October. They're consultative elections. They elect, you know, here in Alberta, we call them senators in waiting, which is a, a term we made up sort of as a joke, but it sort of stuck. Um, and yes, a conservative prime minister could appoint them. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, Justin Trudeau, who is committed to his new system, is not going to appoint them. But he probably, you know, he's not going to necessarily be prime minister forever. I mean, there's an election coming. We could have a conservative prime minister next time round, um, and the, that conservative prime minister could indeed appoint um, not candidates, nominees from Alberta. That said. Um, we have currently two vacancies. Those vacancies will very likely be filled well before we go to the polls in October, at which point we'll have a full complement of senators. Um, uh, Doug, Doug Tannis, um, sorry, Scott Tannis, uh, Patty Labican Benson, and I are all in our mid-50s. We're not coming up to retirement for a while. So, I mean, short of my being hit by a bus or a uh, creating some dreadful scandal. I'm going to be in the Senate for a good while. Uh, Doug Black um, could retire earlier. He's in his 60s. Um, so I don't, I, you know, I haven't talked to Doug about this, what his long-term plans are. Um, you know, it's possible that Doug Black could decide to leave political life and go back to the private sector, or he could stick around till he's 75. Um, so you could be, if you're a senator and waiting from Alberta, you could be waiting a really, really long time <laughs> because you have to wait A, for a conservative government and B, for a Senate vacancy. So, you know, is the point of this just to make Albertans angry so that you can say, oh, we have elected senators and nobody's appointing them? One might speculate that that is a potential outcome. I mean, certainly... Um, uh, Certainly on the day that I was named to the Senate and that Patty Lappican Benson was named to the Senate, Jason Kenney was very quick to voice his disapproval of our appointments. Um, and and that's his prerogative. I mean, uh, it's politics. But um, I don't think that if you look back in the, on the representation that Alberta senators have given, um, 
over debates about things like Bill C-69 and C-48. I think that Patty and Elaine and I uh, were right in their elbows up defending Alberta's interests. I don't see that that having whether we were appointed or elected, it didn't change our commitment to this province. For sure. And when it comes to the elections coming up, what's going to be really interesting just from the legislation that's changed is the amount of money that's involved in it. Uh, it's $500,000 sorry, per candidate in spending and parties can contribute $100,000 per candidate. That's wow. a lot I, of money. Involved. I don't think I had realized that because I hadn't, you know, since I wasn't going to be running, I hadn't dealt into it. Uh, <laughs> you just saved yourself $500,000. Well, you know, this is the thing. I mean, th- so, so, I mean, this speaks to the point I made earlier. I mean, one of the good, I mean, one can argue, and I'm perfectly prepared to argue with, with all comers about whether or not in 2021, it makes sense to still have an appointed upper house. I mean, you know, uh, it is, it is a remnant of a Victorian past. This is the way this this was the way bicameral legislatures were set up in 1867. Um, do we still need a bicameral legislature? If we were starting over again from scratch, would we do it this way? Probably not. But since we have it, and since it's next to impossible to amend the constitution to get rid of it, you might as well make it useful. Um, uh, so that's, you know, that's what I'm there to do. Um, you know, I used to say when I was a columnist that I was like Tinkerbell. If people stopped believing in me, I would die. Nobody would read the columns. Nobody would care about what I wrote if I didn't have credibility. And the Senate is the same way. If people can't be convinced that we ought to have a Senate or that it does anything useful uh, to defend the charter, to defend democracy, to defend uh, constitutional and regional rights, then we should evaporate. So I think it's incumbent upon us every day as senators to demonstrate to people that we're giving you value for money, that you're getting something from us. And I'm not just getting, you know, membership to the world's, you know, coolest country club. Uh, Well, I guess senators aren't cool. The world's plushest country club. Uh, (laughs) I'm a policy nerd. You're cool to me. (laughs) But, but, Wait, I've I've run myself into a corner here. What was my point? My 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 my, my, my point was um, Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell, if you don't believe in us, uh, no. Wait, this was coming back to Jason Kenney and his Senate elections at some point. Um, you know, I don't have to go and raise money. That was the point. Right. I'm not beholden <laughs> to big oil or big environment or big anything. You know, big lentil is not putting money in my pockets. Um, I I am an independent actor. I am not whipped. I am not told by any party leader what to do. I make up my, you know, every vote comes from my own conscience and my own, you know, analysis of public policy. And if you have to make people raise funds like that, they come to the Senate hypothetically owing debts, both literal and figurative. And that's antithetical to the way the Senate was supposed to work. And I just got the imagery of someone from a big lentil lobby approaching you in a dark parkade, approaching you about a bill that's going before the House of Commons that will eventually reach the Senate. <laughs> I, 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 want, I want it noted for my obituary one day that I am the person who coined the hashtag big lentil on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it, it, grew out of, it grew out of a Twitter conversation I was having with uh, economics professor Andrew Leach from the, from the School of Business at the University of Alberta. Mm-hmm. You're talking about value-added upgrading. Uh, and he was saying, you know, nobody, nobody wants us to value upgrade our, uh, our 
things that aren't oil. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, you know, like lentil pasta and lentil, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm you know, so hashtag big lentil. If you, if you look on Twitter, it has a, <laughs> it has a noble history. Oh, I am definitely going to go down that hole tonight. <laughs> Uh, so I'll, I'll keep it federal as much as I can. Um, so the one thing that obviously that was kind of big news in the middle of February when the American Electric was going on was Keystone XL here in Alberta. Um, the big news that sort of came out of that is as soon as President Joe Biden had come out with the news that the presidential permit has been canceled, uh, Premier Jason Kenney had come out and started speaking out saying that he wants Premier just or Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I'm sorry, so used to Alberta politics. I'm used to saying Premier over anything else, but Prime Minister Trudeau to impose sanctions on the United States if diplomatic discussions didn't work. Um, so there's a lot of discussion here in Alberta about this topic. So rather than opining on what should or shouldn't have happened, maybe what you can do is talk about how this is a different situation from the steel tariffs that Canada had with uh, President uh, Trump back in the day, because this isn't so much retaliatory. At, well, it's sort of retaliatory, I no, guess. But no, but 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 the, these are these are really important terms in terms of the way free trade free trade works under the both the WTO and Kusma, the new you know NAFTA 2.0. There are there are rules. I mean, trade wars are fought. With these kind of it's it's like one of those Star Trek episodes where you know they're fighting the war but nobody dot you know they 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 drop the imaginary bomb and then the people have to go line up to volunteer to be killed. It's a next generation episode, um, <laughs> but you know trade wars are fought under very strict rules, sort of like like dueling in the 18th century, um, and so when Trump imposed tariffs on steel and aluminum, we were allowed to retaliate tit for tat. Wait, but, you know, we can see how well that worked out for President Trump. I mean, I happen to believe in free trade, and I happen to think that trade wars tend to backfire on the people who start them. Uh, I mean, President Trump never understood that his tariffs against China didn't cost China money, right? He kept saying, oh, the Chinese have to pay these tariffs. It's like, no, hon, that's not how it works. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the consumers in your country who are paying the tariffs. And when Trump imposed his steel and aluminum tariffs and they cost Americans more money to build things, from cars to houses, um, then that turned out to be, you know, bad economics. It, it didn't make any sense for us legally or uh, economically to threaten to impose uh, sanctions on the United States for canceling Keystone XL. Although I frankly have always supported Keystone XL, the the market case for it has gotten more wobbly over the years. If there isn't demand for our oil then then that's a separate problem. But, you know, it was because of the way Trump approved the pipeline in the first place, sort of by executive fiat, that it could be canceled by executive fiat. That said, I'm, I'm a little bit more alarmed at the saber rattling that's going on over line five. Line yeah. five is the Enbridge line that takes our oil through Michigan to the United States, but also to Sarnia. Uh, and, and Ontario and Quebec depend on the oil that is carried in line five. This isn't just a problem of Alberta, you know, not being able to put the oil in. It's Canadians not being able to take the oil out. And of course, we've never been able to build a pipeline, you know, that goes from here to Quebec because of political pushback and, you know, and and people who didn't think there was enough market for it. So both market and political circumstances conspired, conspired against Energy East. But now we see the problem, right? I mean, 
under the free trade agreement structure, it is irrational for the Americans to try and stop line five from running because we're supposed to be part of an integrated North American energy market. And this is, you know, this is where I have some sympathy uh, for Premier Kenny on the Keystone XL argument. I mean, these are supposed to be our allies, our friends, our trading partners. They're not supposed to, they're not supposed to poke us in the eye with a sharp stick, especially, you know, on the first day of, of a presidential term. But if we can't get a negotiated agreement about line five, we have a huge problem. It has not helped, perhaps, to insult the governor of Michigan. That doesn't seem to me a fruitful strategy. Uh, but we need to have good relations with the Americans. You know, Joe Biden has never been what you'd call a capital C champion of free trade. Uh, he certainly hasn't been as protectionist as Donald Trump turned out to be. But you know, this is this is a huge systemic challenge for us in Canada, how to deal with protectionist sentiment in the White House and in Congress. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation with someone the other day who said to me, you know, one of the challenges with Trump is that he violated all kinds of norms. And once you get used to norms being violated, the next president, even if he's from a different political end of the spectrum, can violate norms in his own way, too. And so, you know, right now, I'm I'm really concerned that we not do anything to imperil line five. If line five were shut down, I think Quebec and Ontario might have a different perspective on the value of pipelines across Canada. <laughs> uh, but you know that that's not actually it's not actually what I want to happen. Well, and it's interesting with pipelines too, because there's so much discussion out there of pro or anti whatever, but it's not a black or white issue. It's gray. And it's very much a case by case basis. Like you said, Keystone versus line five. And obviously if we had energy East, that would be a completely different conversation. We wouldn't, we might not be as worried about line five, but because we don't have that, the reality is this is now the focus that we need to be turning our attention to Keystone. There's not much that we can really do at this point to get that going. It's essentially done. So, and, and we need, you know, we, we need to be very blunt and honest with ourselves in Alberta. Yes. The economic model that we had for the last 50 years is evaporating before our eyes. And this isn't because some evil cabal of, you know, of Jewish, I mean, there's always so much anti-Semitism in this conspiracy crap. Um, This isn't because some cabal of international globalists are conspiring to shut down our oil sector. This is because of climate change, because of market signals, because of changes in demand, uh, you know, occasioned by COVID. Uh, We need to be ready for what comes next. Yes, we need to defend the markets that we have, but we need to be very realistic about where the markets for our energy are in the future. And it's maybe not going to be for bitumen and pipes. It's maybe going to be for different other ways of using our bitumen. It's maybe going to wave, maybe, you know, maybe it's going to be for blue hydrogen. Maybe it's going to be uh, for, you know, liquefied natural gas. I mean, whatever it is that Alberta can bring to market, it may be something different. You know, it might, it might be bitumen in pucks or bricks or something. Um, but we need to be ready 
for a world that responds to climate change. We need to be ready not just to live up to our greenhouse gas commitments because we signed an accord or because we said we would or because somebody's making us like we have to eat our kale. I hate kale. Um, (laughs) I mean, we we have to do these things because we don't actually want, you know, we don't actually want nations to sink into the sea. We don't actually want the permafrost to thaw. I mean, we can't, we can't stick our heads in the ground. Can I, can I go to ostriches from permafrost? I guess if ostriches stuck their head in the ground where the permafrost had melted, they'd get good and stuck. But we can't, (laughs) we can't, I mean, you know, Elaine McCoy of blessed memory was talking about these things in 1987, right? You know, it is time. It is well past time for us to be ready for what is coming in our future, which doesn't mean that we that we you know, that we that we turn off our energy sector. It means that we start transitioning, and not at the last minute, not the way you know I did my homework through you know through years of university by writing my term papers the morning before they were due, uh, <laughs> and hoping that that would work. It, it did. Hint. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's not actually a good strategy for running an energy economy. We have to we have to make sure that our energy economy is positioned for what comes next. And it's interesting because we're finally starting to see a little bit of that diversification coming in the Alberta economy. We're seeing the got or the direction over to hydrogen. We're seeing more investment in AI, LNG. There are those real initiatives happening. It's just Car- it carbon nice. fiber, which is, yes. I mean, which is really cool. I mean, I just, you know, I, I need to delve more deeply into this because, you know, this is, this is the idea uh, that we can take our bitumen and make it into a building material with greater tensile strength than steel, lighter than steel. So, A, we're, we're, we're making something and creating jobs here, making, making a product that manufacturers want, which would you know, so we're not just burning the fossil fuel, but B, we'd be making things like cars and airplanes that weigh so much less that they would need less fuel to operate. So it's an environmental double win. If we can be world leaders in carbon fiber production, that's a, that's a tremendous, you know, thing to add to our, you know, to our, to our uh, cornucopia of environmental uh, and, and economic uh, projects in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And, I, I just feel like if we were to go down this uh, direction any longer, we could probably be going for three or four hours if we're <laughs> trying to be conservative about it. So conservative in the sense of like trying to really restrict the debate as opposed to like going really far into it. So I'll, I'll try and divert from that a little bit, but I want to talk to you a bit again. So getting away from the political side of things, going to uh, a project that you have going on. So the journalist in you obviously is still very well alive and uh, doing great. Uh, you started season two of your own podcast, Alberta Outbound. Uh, yeah. How's that been going for you? Well, I mean, uh, like everyone, I decided to do a podcast during the pandemic. Uh, you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, uh, a- after, after the baking sessions, you know, then, okay. All right. So I've baked enough. What can I do next? Um, So actually Alberta Unbound began even before uh, COVID-19. The first season was based on a panel discussion I had live at the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona uh, back in March of 2020, uh, back in the days when you could all gather together and and eat canapes. Um, And I had a panel that included Jared Wesley, political scientist from the U of A, Diana Steinhauer, the president of Yellowhead Tribal College, Shannon Stubbs, conservative uh, member of parliament, uh, Doug Griffiths, former PC, 
uh, member of the legislature here, and Omar Mawalam, a brilliant freelance journalist based in Edmonton. And I got them up on a stage in front of a live audience to ask them questions about Alberta identity and who was an Albertan and how did they feel about the stereotypes about Alberta? And do we perpetuate, you know, are we our own worst enemies in perpetuating those stereotypes? And how do we break out of those stereotypical molds? And how do we convince ourselves and others that Albertans are more than the, you know, the one note homogeneous perspective that people outside Alberta often have about us. And, and so we cut it up into five episodes and people liked it. And I had always intended to do a second season, but then COVID hit in earnest and gathering together in theaters made very little sense. So the second season is nine interviews with nine really different uh, engaged Albertans from Grand Prairie down to Brooks, Edmonton, Calgary, all of whom have their own complicated relationships with Alberta identity. Uh, and we did this after Black Lives Matter. Uh, and so everybody on the podcast I didn't want to make a big thing of it. Like I never say in the introduction and no one on this podcast is white. But in fact, uh, the idea was to talk to people from very different backgrounds, ethnocultural backgrounds about their lived experience of being Albertans. So uh, Barry Morishita, for example, is the mayor of Brooks, which he argues is the most multicultural uh, municipality in Canada. So he talks uh, really thoughtfully about what it has been like for Brooks to become so multicultural so quickly because of the packing plant there. They have, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, they had this huge influx of uh, workers from around the world. And he's talked about what it's like for a small Alberta town to make that change. But he also talks about his family's life experience because his father was born in a Japanese internment camp. Uh, his his grandmother, who was Canadian born, was interned as an enemy alien. And so he talks about, you know, what his experience as a third generation Japanese Canadian helps him to do when he's when he's being mayor of Brooks. Um, we talk to uh, uh, Tomi Ajele, who is the editor of Afros in the City, this really interesting uh, Black journalism uh, website happening in Calgary about what it's like to be a Nigerian-Canadian born here, you know, to try and, you know, she, she talks, she's very funny talking about how in her childhood she tried, she cheered so hard for the Calgary Flames and tried to learn the names of all the Flames payers, and, you know, because she thought that's what it meant to be an Albertan, uh, you know? So, so as I said, there are nine interviews. I won't precede them all, but they're all really interesting. Um, you know, uh, one person is an immigrant to Alberta. Other people like, like Barry are, you know, third generation. So it, um, it, it gives you, what I'm hoping is that all these different voices taken together push back against the tired, wrung out narratives of this province and who lives here and why they love this place. And I wanted, I wanted to give voice to people who are often not heard nationally. I mean, some of these people have profile in, in Alberta and people will recognize their names. Um, but outside of Alberta, these aren't the voices that people hear. And I really wanted to say, you know, I'm a proud Albertan. My family has lived here more than 100 years. I'm as real as an Albertan as you can get. And I'm not the stereotype that you have about Albertans. And I think people outside of Alberta, I mean, 
people that live here, we understand, and to, I apologize for using an overused term, but it really is a cultural mosaic here in this province because you have people, very few people have been here for their entire lives. Their families have immigrated from different places or they've moved from different provinces. Like myself, my great-grandparents on the Ukrainian side moved during the famine to Alberta, but my dad's side came here from Newfoundland. So it's there's no what is an Albertan. So yeah. I love this project that you have, but I, I, this is something that'll never be narrowed down because I think from my own perspective, being an Albertan is very individualized. It's sort of whatever the culture has imposed on you, but what have you taken from this? What have you learned? Well, you know, what I've really learned is uh, how radically quickly this province is transforming. Um, how much further we've come in the conversation about reconciliation with First Nations, how that conversation has accelerated over the last, you know, I was going to say 10 years, but it's really five years. I mean, we're just thinking about our relationship to the First Nations and the founding communities of this province in a completely different way. And I think some of the credit for that goes to uh, uh, Murray Sinclair, my erstwhile Senate colleague who retired last week, it's very sad, um, uh, and his Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which I think kickstarted a whole different way of looking at it, at whose province this is, whose province it started off being, and how do we get to a point where reconciliation is more than pretty words and putting up flags outside of City Hall. So that was a really critical takeaway for me was to talk to, um, I, have, I have two guests, uh, Aaron Paquette, who's the Edmonton City Councillor, who's also an award-winning novelist and a visual artist, and Alika Lafontaine, who is an Indigenous uh, physician from Grand Prairie, who's running to be the president of the Canadian Medical Association, um, and just talking to them about their experiences growing up here um, and experiencing life as, you know, as indigenous leaders of a new generation, it's, it's very inspiring. Um, I guess the other big takeaway is all the really smart young people, because a lot of the people I talk to are in their, you know, their 20s or early 30s. And to see the entrepreneurial genius, the artistic genius of this generation of Albertans, uh, whose parents were immigrants, but who themselves have grown up here and redefined what it means to be citizens of this place uh, and to see the intellectual leadership and the moral leadership coming from that generation. Uh, it, it made me feel very good that the future of this province is in really good hands. Uh, and it's interesting. I'm watching candidates step forward, throwing their names in the ring for Edmonton's upcoming municipal election. And I'm seeing so many new names or names that I know in other contexts, um, but that young people in their, you know, early 30s from a, from a whole eclectic range of cultural backgrounds. I mean, I think, I think this is going to be a very transformative municipal election for Edmonton. And I think... I think that people have been empowered and, you know, and maybe it's the COVID lockdown in a strange way. We've all been huddled and hibernated and, you know, people have been online cross-pollinating their ideas. And I think that there's a lot of inspirational energy out there. For sure. It's, 
it, that's one thing I'd love to dive into one day is just what effect, I mean, this might be something you can't do for like 10 or 15 years, but what effect did the COVID shutdowns have on political awareness and political acuity? Uh, not just in Alberta, but countrywide, worldwide, because people have the time to dedicate to things like this a lot more than they might normally have. I mean, there are some people that came out of this with really good sourdough starter recipes. Some people started <laughs> brewing kombucha or something. Some people got politically active. I mean, whatever you did, everybody had to find something. It's, and... all, it's all fermentation. Everything is fermented. <laughs> but, but, you know, like I, I've been thinking about this, you know, uh, watching the success of Ryan, Jes- Ryan Jesperson's five days a week podcast. I don't know that it would have caught fire in the same way if it weren't for COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's become a cultural reference point for, for people in Alberta so quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, it, there's just been all of this really interesting discourse, this kind of, I mean, some of it is anger, anger at the provincial government, anger at the federal government. uh, But some of it is not coming from a place of anger. It's coming from a place, I think, of hope. And I think the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer also played a role in that. I think it made us in Canada, because I think at the beginning, a lot of the response here was like, yes, we're marching in solidarity with Black Americans because, you know, it's terrible to be Black in America. And I think it took like a week and a half for people to go, oh, maybe we're not just marching in solidarity with Americans. Maybe we need to look in the mirror. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, you know, this isn't, this isn't just a problem that they are having. It's a problem that we are having in a conversation we need to be having. And I think, um, I think some of the energy of BLM is also informing some of the really interesting political uh, and media experiments that are that are popping up in Alberta right now. And you're definitely seeing how the policy has been impacted, whether it be through funding decisions or whether it be through inquiries that are going on. That's just, this is not something that's going to end anytime soon. And who knows what the ripple effects will be. Only time will tell what that will have. And again, you're giving so many good ideas for future podcasts. <laughs> But uh, what I'll do here is I want to respect your time. You've been very, you've been more than generous. So thank you, Senator Simons, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. I I finished the whole cup of tea. Yeah, I got mine down as well. I think I'll have to have another one just because that was really nice one. It was nice to have something that uh, I still have my wits about me afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm not much of a drinker at the best of times, but I sure as heck don't drink in podcast. (laughs) It's, it's probably for the best. I've, I've been lucky. So fingers crossed that I stay on that track, but again, thank you, Senator Simons. It's been a pleasure. We'll have you on anytime and uh, best of luck to you once uh, everything gets going again. Thanks. And and everybody listen to Alberta unbound after you listen to Aaron's excellent podcast and Ryan's excellent podcast and everybody else's excellent podcast. Listen to mine because it's pretty excellent too. Absolutely. And on, I will say this with full sincerity. There's a lot of good messages coming from there. It's really good to get those different perspectives. And I highly encourage it. Anybody who wants to check out Alberta Unbound, absolutely do so. Check out Ryan too, because his podcast seems to be doing pretty okay. <laughs> he, 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 he doesn't need us. He doesn't need uh, us. He, need us. <laughs> he probably he might not even see this. If you do see it, Ryan, say hi. I'm here. But uh, otherwise, keep doing what you're doing. So thank you very much. And we'll uh, we'll see you again. Thanks, Aaron.